Good morning, and thank you for tuning in to The Global Current on 89.5 FM WSOU. I'm your host, Stephanie Miller. As the School of Diplomacy's premier radio show, we take a new topic in international news each week and ask the question, is diplomacy the answer? We've got a great show for you today discussing the legal status of former Sudanese dictator Omar al-Bashir with our analyst DJ Matos and our executive producer, Bella Fisher. Guys, this is great. Let me just start off by saying that, like, okay, this is, like, kind of a big deal. Like, call me a nerd if you want, but I'm super excited. Like, if Sudan actually hands al-Bashir over, we're going to be witnessing a historic trial and potentially a historic conviction. Like, what is going on? Well, so from my understanding, Sudan's previous, what you might say, president, but what we understand to be dictator... Omar al-Bashir committed um, genocide, crimes of humanity, and war crimes. Well, that's the accusations coming from the ICC. So here's what we're trying to find out is if that is true and how we will actually convict him. Because what we've noticed right now is they don't exactly have Omar al-Bashir. So how are we going to get him? to the ICC. Really? It's a big question. They don't have Omar al-Bashir? I thought he was sitting on trial right now. Like, actually, I thought they had already convicted him for corruption. I thought he was, like, sitting in a jail somewhere. So he's sitting in the Sudanese uh, transitional government's jail, right? Okay. But the ICC doesn't particularly have him yet, if Ah, that makes sense. Ah, okay. So they're in talks. They're having communications right now because previously 12 years ago like this is not recent 12 years ago they had tried to prosecute omar al-bashir for the crimes he committed yet they weren't able to do so because of the jurisdiction of the icc in being able to say well did he actually commit those crimes of genocide because it's such a broad topic and you have to be very very specific when it comes to genocide interesting and dj you actually have some statistics about the genocide in darfur what's up there yeah so the situation in darfur is what he was convicted for in i believe it was 2008 and then in 2010 they issued out a second arrest warrant for him but the united nations estimates that 300,000 people have been killed in the conflict and 2.5 million have been forced from their homes wow that's insane yeah, the, the Sudan government denied that the death toll was that high, but the fact that they didn't deny that there wasn't a death toll is, uh, is alarming by itself. Yeah, it's pretty telling. Um, yeah, the violence in Darfur erupted in 2003 after rebels began an uprising against the Sudanese government just because you have a, you have a man in charge of a government, uh, of a democratic government, I say that with quotes, for 30 years, and it's just constant making up of, of statistics for his elections. I mean, um, a, f- a couple of years ago when he was reelected, they said that 94% of the population elected him. So what? Yeah, it's it's just, it's not even believable. <laughs> like they're <laughs> yeah, not even I guess trying. Not. Uh, um, no, I'd say not. That's kind of crazy. Yeah. So for 30 years, Sudan was just making up statistics. Yeah, pretty much uh, under his government. Yeah, they rigged elections, and he was, um, he had warrants out for his conviction under uh, genocide mm-hmm. and corruption. Right, right. And what's interesting about uh, the 
statistics DJ brings up is that I have here that South Sudan became independent in 2011 and before that um, I want to say a couple of years before there were stats taken that showed that 99% of South Sudan was in favor of the separation really really huh that is definitely interesting so if I can pose this question why has it taken the ICC so long to bring Omar al-Bashir to justice? That is a very big question. Um, one of the main reasons is because he's hard to reach. So Omar al-Bashir, from my understanding, has been able to kind of shift where he's lived so that the ICC hasn't been able to gain, gain access to him particularly. Um, and additionally, he, like I said, 12 years ago, they tried to prosecute him, and you have to be very particular in this prosecution, otherwise you can't do it. So what happens in international law is there's this thing called customary laws, right? Mm -hmm. And in customary laws, there has to be norms, and one of the norms is that, you know, you can't commit these mass murder crimes, these heinous acts, and that was found under the Genocide Convention, right? So even though Sudan didn't ratify the Genocide Convention or the Roman statue, it basically means that the ICC can only gain access to this trial if his crimes were worth or are heinous enough to do so. Does okay. that make sense? Uh, yeah, that actually makes a lot of sense. So... You're telling me that something we should probably consider here is that the transitional government is still trying to hold al-Bashir accountable while he's in Sudan? Like, he's not at the ICC just yet, so is there some tension between the ICC trying to try al-Bashir? Is there some tension with, like, the transitional government? Are they in talks right now? Like, what's going on? So what's going on is they're in talks. So under Omar al-Bashir's reign, you might say, the economy of Sudan had a horrible pitfall. I mean, um, it was just, they could barely, citizens could barely afford to have rations for bread kind of pitfall. So great, great. That was, uh, that was one of the main reasons that, um, he ha was overthrown in the first place. And then because he was in, um, was leading the country, U.S. had sanctions against the country, so it made the economic disparity that much worse because of U.S. sanctions. Okay, so U.S. has sanctions against Sudan for war crimes, so in order to alleviate these sanctions, Sudan is willing to hand Omar al-Bashir over to the ICC. Correct. That's interesting, because the United States is actually not a party to the Rome Statute. They did not ratify it. Huh. All right. All right. But... You would think that be, even though Sudan is not a member of the Rome Statute, or, and by extension the ICC, but they are still willing to hand over Omar al-Bashir, like, that's pretty telling of the situation. Like, wouldn't you say, DJ? Yeah, and this only happened, so mid-December of last year, 2019, Bashir was sentenced to two years in a correctional facility, uh, and after being found guilty of corruption and possessing illegal foreign currency. So... They had to wait until he went to jail to actually take hold of power and have you know enough political capital to contact the international authorities and actually bring him to justice for more than just two years in a correctional facility. 
I mean, this could be life in prison or, or worse for Omar al-Bashir. Really, you actually think could be could be worse? Like, what what's worse than a life in prison? Like, would they actually give him the death sentence? I don't think so. Uh, you know, I don't think so just because it's just not really the international mark of justice is to yeah, kill somebody like yeah. that um, the, death, the death penalty is pretty controversial these days yes yeah, it, it depends so sorry to cut you off but it totally depends on where this trial is being held so right now that's one of the big questions is is the icc going to hold this trial or is sudan going to have the ability to because remember if sudan has the ability to they practice sharia law really they i didn't do. know that they do so if omar al-bashir is tried in sudan then they could actually give him the death penalty. Yeah. Huh. It's very possible. So, in your opinions, who should try Omar al-Bashir? For me, uh, personally, it doesn't matter. You know, as long as, <laughs> as long as he never finds power again. Well, yeah. that's good. What about you, Bella? Um, personally, I'm a little biased because the Sudanese government right now is in transition so they're trying to become democratized but it doesn't exactly mean that they are ready for democratization and with that being said i don't think that they're quite ready yet to hold such a monumental case because one thing that has to be recognized is that he's the first ever sitting head of state to be wanted by the icc and he's also the first genocide case to be brought to the icc so i think that this is a monumental case for international law in general and it should be tried by the ICC to set some sort of precedent because as we previously mentioned when it comes to customary law there's not much there so it's a lot of relying on what seems right in the moment it's a lot of gray area a sea of gray <laughs> oh, yeah. really and and not only that now that you bring it up uh, reminds me if you give a transitional government that much power to hold over someone who's been so corrupt for 30 years, the people might see that as sort of like an icon. Like, oh, they brought down our formerly corrupt leader. We should follow this new government. Even if it's not the democracy we want, those are the people we want. So therefore, you know, I'm willing to make concessions. And one of those concessions might be the democracy that they've been lacking all these years. So in a way, like, idolizing him. And, yes. Or the, the new government. government. So they'd be willing to allow the transitional government to kind of, like, stay in transition. It's possible. I mean, you saw that with uh, America's founding, George Washington. People were kind of ready to hand him the reins and let him take over. Which is terrifying when you say that, because I think, as I think Bella pointed out, that this is a transitional government and these people aren't supposed to remain in power forever. I mean, I think we do see that the transitional government is still full of people from Omar al-Bashir's previous administration, people who probably should be brought to the Hague themselves. Mm -hmm. And I think, DJ, you bring up an excellent point that if there is a sense of like iconization like of this government, then maybe holding a trial in Sudan isn't the most viable alternative. Yeah. All right. So in layman's terms, we can't screw this up. No. And I do want to go back just a little bit to further support why I think the ICC needs to in regards to Sudan. Because I had mentioned they're suffering from dis economic disparity, right? So what this means is that they're still under U.S. sanctions. And on top of that, the only way for them to receive the help that they need is to 
get the U.S. to lift those sanctions, which will then basically be a gateway for the help that is necessary. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, definitely. The way they're trying to do it is to become more democratized, go through the ICC, and then the U.S. will hopefully lift those sanctions, and then floodgates will open, and maybe, maybe not, they'll receive the help that is so necessary to have a little bit more money than just a ration for bread. Great. So, do you think that it's feasible that in the future, Sudan could eventually ratify the Rome Statute? I have a quote here from the previous uh, leader, Omar al-Bashir, and when he was speaking about um, any foreign court, truthfully, he vowed that he would never hand over Sudanese to the foreign court, to a foreign government. Okay, yeah, but that's also Omar al-Bashir talking, right? That's totally Omar al-Bashir, and I don't exactly know what the sentiments are in the region, but I do believe that because of the necessity and the direness of their situation, they might be most definitely willing to do so. Okay, so going back to the theme of our episode for this week, is diplomacy the answer? Do we think diplomacy is the answer? Is is diplomacy even a factor to consider here? Um, for me, uh, yes and no. Uh, there should be some kind of military incursion. Uh, it not only would be good for the U.S. to lift the sanctions and in, introduce some military to the area just to provide enough stability for the transitional government, but you, you'd be able to do more with a hands-on approach, to be honest. Um, I know that it's failed in, in other yeah. <laughs> parts of the world, but um, you know, learning from those past mistakes, not making a war out of it, and just introducing the troops to, to the region. Like, right now, we have over 1,500 troops in Kuwait and Turkey, uh, Kuwait and Turkey, uh, another 500 in Qatar, a little over 250 in Egypt. So you have a U.S. military presence everywhere. It's just not in the one place you really need it right now. <laughs> so just to provide extra, extra support, rationing, uh, medicine, hopefully, just get American presence out there for NGOs to really be able to dig in as well. You need that protection for NGOs. You can't just send an NGO in. Uh, a lot of times, that they'll actually rely on like militias to protect them, and that's how they'll use their funding. They'll fund the people that are killing other people so that the NGOs can help certain people. It's a whole mess in a lot of other countries. That's true, and Sudan has had a lot of problems with militias in the past. Yes. Yeah, the pro-government militias actually did the killing in Darfur. And Talk that's... to us a little bit about that. Um, back in, I believe it was 2003, mm-hmm. rebels in the Darfur region of Sudan uh, would rise up against the Sudanese government. So then another group of pro-government militia people just kind of started killing people. Love <laughs> to see it. No, it it's, <laughs> it's really an awful play of events because you have people who are fighting this, so in 2000, in 2000 right, uh, Omar al-Bashir won with an 85% vote. And 85%? It, it's not, quote-unquote. Yeah, in 1996, it was 75%. Uh, recently, I think it was 2015, it was 94% of the vote. Um, and, you know, 
it's just it's it's inconceivable these numbers uh, so in 2003 uh, the rebels rose up against the sudanese government janjaweed i think janjaweed militia a pro-government militia uh, was actually accused in 2004 of murdering and raping people in darfur as a you know retaliation Ooh, that so. is definitely a war crime yeah that's a pretty that's a pretty bad one and, and it's it's very suspicious because it's pro-government and obviously not a lot of people like the government so yeah. it's a big chance that it was funded or or you had other things going on in the in the background okay so kind of just a little side note when i was doing my research for this something that i found interesting was like i, I can't recall which article i read but there was a comparison of the civilians of our Darfur to Jews in a Warsaw ghetto, right? That's interesting. Right. I'm like really hesitant to compare the situation in Darfur to the Holocaust. And I think that's the whole point of what I read as well, because it was more of, um, not that it's the equivalent, but okay, so, so this is like bad, you know? Okay. But the Holocaust is like, oh my gosh, this is bad. Does that make sense? Do you so, think that there's, like, a little bit of, like, historicism going on here? Because, like, the Holocaust mm -hmm. is kind of, like, the catalyst moment for human rights and international relations. Right. Whereas the situation in Darfur, we all knew it was happening and we still didn't do anything. We knew what it was, too, you know? Right. Like, kind of like Rwanda. Yeah. So, like, I think it's more of a contextualization, from my understanding. So, the point is that you could com be comparing a war to World War II. But in truth, there's not really any major wars like that anymore. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. So this is the genocide that we see in Darfur is bad, right? Mm -hmm. But this is bad for our time period. Whereas if we contextualize to what previously occurred in World War II, that was atrocious, horrible. Mm -hmm. But it was fitting for that time period. Well, you know, I, I think Omar al-Bashir was hoping it chalk off to two rebel groups fighting each other in a province of Sudan, Sudan. But there's all this evidence that just stacked up on top of each other. I don't think it necessarily helped his case. Wasn't he somehow related to the sanction of the Janjaweed? I think he was. I think he actually, like, approved and sanctioned the Janjaweed. Right. I'd have to go back and look it up, but like that was definitely a thing. I remember reading it. Yeah. yeah. Uh, that's not great. And I think the ICC also thinks it's not great. So just to recap here, Al-Bashir is suspected of committing as an indirect perpetrator five counts of crimes against humanity, which are more murder, extermination, forcible transfer, torture, and rape. You've got two counts of war crimes, which is intentionally directing attacks against the civilian population and pillaging mm -hmm. in Darfur, and three counts of genocide during the alleged counterinsurgency campaign. The three counts of genocide include genocide by killing, genocide by causing serious bodily or mental harm, and genocide by deliberately inflicting conditions of life calculated to bring about physical destruction. So, my boy Omar's done it all. Yeah, according to the article 2 of the Genocide Convention, lock him up. Wow. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Great. No, and, and the UN actually gave him, like, outs all throughout this, too. They did, right? Yeah. And, like, member states, too. Like, yeah. hold on just one second. So, 
the ICC issued arrest warrants, right? Mm -hmm. But even after these arrest warrants were issued, al-Bashir was still visiting several UN and ICC member states without arrests, despite pressure from civil society, despite pressure from international organizations, and despite pressure from the ICC. And it got so bad that eventually he was confined to Sudan. But I feel like it's still really, really important that for 30 years, like, the UN Security Council just kind of let a war criminal walk around. I think it's it's extremely fascinating if you think about it. But also there's this huge factor that plays into it that we never really consider is that to be able to put him to trial by the ICC, there has to be witnesses, right? Yeah. So for there to be witnesses, there has to be people willing to speak up against him. Mm-hmm. And because Omar al-Bashir is so powerful, he has all these different connections. Who's going to want to speak up against this quote-unquote president slash dictator and be like, oh, by the way, you want to know what? He should go to jail because he did XX and X. So, well, I think it helps that he's already in jail. I think that helps a lot now. However, just because he's contained in a cell doesn't necessarily mean his reach is contained as well. I would think it is. Like, I would just hope it is. as much as I know about the transitional government in Sudan, I don't think there's any chance that they're going to let Bashir walk away. Not a chance. No, not, not after all that. I mean, like, we're talking Bashir visited UN Secretary General uh, Ban Ki-moon Wait, in he, 2007. He visited Ban Ki-moon? Yeah. They, like, they they straight up, like, had a conversation? September of 2007, he met with uh, UN Secretary General Ban Ki-moon uh, so that uh, Ban Ki-moon could make him agree to peace talks with the rebels. Oh, um, that explains then, a little bit. Okay. Nobody showed up <laughs> <laughs> to the peace talks, and they were postponed indefinitely. Great. And then two years later, he gets um, issued an arrest warrant for war um, crimes. Actually, like, six months later. Wow. <laughs> uh, July of 2008, so like six, seven months later, the chief prosecutor of the ICC filed charges against Bashir for genocide and war crimes. Okay. Mm-hmm. That, that actually makes sense, because on top of that, there have been active attempts to get national authorities to arrest al-Bashir, right? Like, there were arrest warrants in Angola, Mali, Kenya, South Africa, Nigeria, Democratic Republic of the Congo, Ethiopia, Egypt, Morocco, Zambia, Rwanda. God, I love the Rwandans. Like, the Rwanda genocide happened, and, like, ever since then, they've been, like, crazy fans of transitional justice. I love it. And Chad. That's a lot of countries that want al-Bashir brought to justice, and he's only getting sent to the ICC, maybe, now. That's rough. Yeah. All right, so, final thoughts? Yeah, I I found this, um, I found two quotes that I kind of liked, and the first one's just in regards to, okay, so, um, going back to my whole reason why diplomacy is the answer is that the Sudanese people need this. They need the ICC to be able to over kind of move past this now. And so the first quote I have is by Mohammed al Um He's a Sudanese uh, sovereign council and he said, we cannot achieve justice unless we heal wounds with justice. 
So the only way this is gonna happen is if he is brought to trial and that is brought to fruition. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Okay. And then additionally, um, the Sudanese Prime Minister said to the UN General Assembly that it was a former regime that supported terrorism and the Sudanese people revolted against it. These sanctions have caused tremendous suffering to our people. End quote. So I just wanted to bring that up because I think it's really important to show that the US sanctions do have an effect on the Sudanese people and the sooner that the ICC is able to perform this trial, the sooner the US can lift sanctions and the Sudanese people can get some form of relief. All right, RN DJ? We're talking about a man who in 1989 led a coup against the legitimate prime minister in 1990, survived his own coup attempt, and then executed 30 of his own officers. And then in 1993, the United States Department, uh, the United States State Department, put Sudan on its list of states that sponsor terrorism. And it only goes downhill from there. I think the only way that you could really solve this problem is introducing at least some military presence I, I think we should have a military presence in Sudan, at least enough to get NGOs involved and provide proper security for where Omar al-Bashir could be held. All right, and I do think it goes without saying that Sudan's in a pretty interesting place right now, just with the transitional government and everything. And it is a valid question to ask whether Sudan's government is up for holding a full-on tribunal to convict their former leader, especially given ongoing instability in the region, as you said, Bella. And I do think this is a conversation that is ongoing with the ICC and the Sudanese government. I do think that the ICC has been pretty quiet about all of this, kind of like moving forward, even after the Sudanese announced that they were probably going to send Bashir to the ICC. So there will be some dialogue moving forward about what domestic accountability process versus a accountability process at the Hague is going to look like. I think those are two very separate things. And I think at the end of the day, it's going to be up to Sudan to decide whether they're going to step up and handle this themselves, or if this is something so big that the ICC has to take over. What do you guys think about that? Is Do you think that's a fair analysis? Honestly, I would say um, we have to have accountability like Omar al-Bashir even though he was previously ousted like we don't want him to have some kind of golden parachute where he just magically disappears and goes off into you know the rainbow sun- sunset and we don't see or hear from him again because that doesn't bring the dark for civilians any justice alright so. so final final thought of the day he's a bad dude lock him up Fair enough. All right, cool. Diplomacy is the answer. Hey, great. So thanks, guys. That wraps up this week's show. Be sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram for updates on upcoming shows. This show could not be made possible without executive producer Bella Fisher, technical producer Brittany Segura, assistant technical producer Jason Marieski, interview producer Tian Fan, news editor Jarrett Dang, and special thanks to our sound engineer, Emilio Soto. As always... I'm Stephanie Blair. The Global Current is brought to you by the School of Diplomacy and International Relations at Seton Hall University. Be sure to tune in every Sunday at 7.30 a.m. Eastern Standard Time on 89.5 FM WSOU. See you next week.